What's going on, Victory Church? Hey, doing this morning? It's Labor Day weekend. I hope you're feeling good. Hope you're getting ready to do some cooking out, maybe today or tomorrow. My name is Troy. Me and my wife, Darla, get the incredible privilege to pastor Victory Church. And look, I got to take a second. I know that Malcolm and Brian talked about it for a moment, but I, I like to celebrate you as a church because you constantly go above and beyond and surprise me at how incredible you are, whether it's being generous, whether it's serving the community. And last week, I was so excited. By the time we got done preaching, we did some water baptisms with just incredible stories. By the time I could change and get out in the lobby, there was so much energy in the lobby of people signing up for small groups and connecting. And I was telling somebody in the church, I was like, man, I I love how every week it seems like the church, you know, we're only eight months old, not even that. And so every week, it seems like the church is getting more and more comfortable with one another and connecting connecting and being able to become more and more like a family, as Brian said. So, like they said, if for whatever reason you weren't here, you had to run out to lunch, and you didn't get an opportunity to sign up for small groups, get on that app, read about them, get connected so that you can kind of find that family, find that community that we've been talking about. Cool? Amen? Do me a favor, you got your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. When you go to the New Testament, Matthew's the first book uh, written by the disciple Matthew, kind of his perception of what it was like to walk with Jesus. If you don't have your Bibles, feel free to get on your phones. If you don't have either, we're going to have it on the screen, so do not worry. This series, you may be going, what is this series about? They're talking about lions and circuses, and they got Troy up there with a top hat. What are they talking about? Let me tell you, this series is is special to my heart because for the next six weeks, we are going to stop everything else, and we are going to take and focus our attention on Jesus Christ, okay? And, and don't get me wrong, we preach about Jesus every week, but we've talked about community, we talked about how to hear the voice of God, we talked about all kinds of different things, but we're going to look for six weeks at the message, the method, the madness, the manhood, the miracles of Jesus Christ. We're going to break all that down, look into it, and, and, and here's what I understand. The more that I study about Jesus, I learn that he seems to be irresistible to those who were nothing like him. That's what blows my mind. He was irresistible to those who were nothing like him. He was irresistible to everybody. And and people will argue that. They'll say, now, wait a minute. I've read the Bible. The Pharisees and the religious, they hated him. I, I see what you're saying. But before you say that, listen to me. I don't know that they so much hated him as much as they feared him. Okay? It wasn't that they hated him, they, they feared him. And here's why they feared him. They feared him because they had never seen anybody so popular. They had never seen anybody so irresistible to both believer and non-believer. Let me show you a verse in John that kind of sets this up. Okay, So John 11, 47 through 48, as Brian said, notes are in the app. But if you are a note taker, we, we like to encourage that because, listen, I'm going to give you a lot of one-liners. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture. And I, I, I trust you to go home and study it for yourself and to be able to make sure that I'm not up here just uh, encouraging you to do something, but instead reading the word. So then the chief, the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. So they called a meeting because Jesus was so popular they called a meeting because they had to figure something out. Look, look, at the, look at this statement. If we let him go on like this, if we let him keep being popular, keep being irresistible, everyone will believe in him. If we let him, he's so irresistible. Something about him is so magnetic and so attracting that if we don't do something about this, if we don't put him in jail or if we don't kill him, everybody is going to like him. 
Everybody's going to follow him. And, and, and eventually, that the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Jesus was irresistible. But I was looking at a Barna research uh, this week, and it said that, according to this research, there are over 300,000 churches in America. I actually thought there got to be more. I see one on every corner of every street. There's got to be more. But just to put it into kind of a perception for you, there are only 12,000-ish Starbucks. <laughs> so that gives you an idea. If, there's, if you see a Starbucks as much as you do, and you see there's more, way more churches than Starbucks. But here's what was interesting to me. Despite 300,000 churches, 45% of Americans say they are not Christ followers. <laughs> How do you have 300,000 churches and almost half of the Americans near those churches say, I choose to not be a Christ follower. When I saw this, here was my question. How come every American doesn't go to church? Right? If Jesus was so irresistible, how come every person that you, I understand that people might go to different denominations, and, and I understand all that. That's not what I'm talking about. I just mean the church, period. The one, any church that preaches Jesus, if Jesus was so irresistible, why wouldn't every American go to church? So here's the ultimate question. You ready? If Jesus was so irresistible, how come his church seems to be so resistible? And I came upon this statement in Mark 16, 15, and it's what kind of birthed the topic of this series and the name of it, where Jesus said this. This was kind of his mission to us as Christians. Go into all of the world and proclaim the gospel. That word proclaim is just a very uh, biblical word for tell, shout, speak, share. So Jesus said, go and tell. And I feel like that the American church has gotten really good at saying, come and see while Jesus was saying, go and tell. And so I think that's why it's lost some of its effectiveness, because people are coming to see one thing, and a lot of times when they're coming to see something, they're not coming to see the irresistible Jesus. They're coming to see things they like, right? They're coming to see people they like. They're coming to, to feel like they can mark it off their list, just like we do attending the grocery store, right? We did this holy thing. Now I can go home and be a football fan, and Jesus won't send me to hell. You know, these, all these kind of weird statements that we have and why we would come to church. But Jesus never said come to church. He said go and tell the gospel because anybody who hears the gospel will find themselves in the church. Why? Because when you hear the gospel, you start to understand Jesus' message, and you understand the purpose of the church in Jesus' message and you have to be here. So with that being said, here's what I want to do over the next six weeks. Over the next six weeks, I want to I introduce you to an irresistible Jesus so that you can go and tell an irresistible message. Cool? So here we go. Starting message, intro message. What was Jesus' message? What was it? Here's Jesus. What was throughout Scripture and even today, what is his message? Just in a, in a short worship set of three songs, we get three different perspectives of Jesus. From the resurrecting Jesus to the fact that his love echoes to he's the only king forever. We have all these descriptions of Jesus. If you go down to V Kids, they're teaching a perspective of Jesus. If you read the Bible, did you know that from Genesis to Revelation, it's about Jesus? 
I taught this a few weeks ago, a few months ago. Everything, every word in the Bible is supporting Jesus. Every aspect. Everything was about Jesus. But what was his message? What was it? And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, and we're just going to look at three verses, and we're going to break those verses down. Matthew 9, 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Matthew got up and he followed him. Well, sometimes we make following Jesus more difficult than it needs to be, right? Jesus said, follow me. He got up and he followed him. Notice he didn't learn theology. He didn't learn how to break down Greek and Hebrew. He didn't cleanse all of his own sins. He just got up and followed him, but that's another time for another day. Uh, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. They never went to Jesus. They knew Jesus would put them in, in their place. So they went to his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was saying this, you have missed my message. You have completely got it wrong. You know about me, you know of me, you, 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 you tend to worship my father and all, but, but you have gotten my message wrong. So much that you think I'm here for the healthy, but I'm here for the sick. So much that you think I'm here for the righteous, but I'm here for the sinner. They missed his message. Have you ever missed the message in something before? You know, like you go through all the actions and all the experiences, but you just totally missed the message behind it. I have. Let me share this story with you. So you need to understand two things about me and my wife. Number one, my wife loves surprises, loves them. But more than she loves to be surprised, she loves to do the surprising, okay? There would be nothing more fun for her, for one of you to come to her and go, hey, I want to surprise my husband and my wife and my kids, and I want your help. Oh, she loves it. She loves it, okay? Here's the thing about me. I hate surprises, You see where the marriage counseling is needed already, right? So she loves surprises, and she loves surprising people, and I hate surprises. Can't stand it. If you're surprising me with something, stop it. I don't like surprise birthday parties. I don't even, if you came to me and said, I need to talk to you about something, I'll go, what is it? Tell me now, because I don't want to be surprised later. You know, I hate surprises. And so my birthday came up one year, right? And we were doing this thing as a married couple. I suggest you do it, but you might want to rename it. We called it kidnapping, all right? That might be a little, you know, politically incorrect at this point. But uh, the concept was this. I'll shoot her a text and say, hey, be dressed and ready with this kind of attire at 5 p.m. And so I might tell her, you know, dress up or dress down, depending on what we're doing. And she doesn't, she doesn't plan anything. She just knows to be there at 5, and I come pick her up, and the whole thing, it's not so much a surprise as much as it is she doesn't have to plan it, right? Because what do we do as a couple when we go on a date? We get rid of the kids, we get in the car, and then we go, where do you want to go? I don't know, where do you want to go? I don't know. And by the time you figure that out, you go eat and you go home and go to bed, right? It's just, it's just, it's just welcome to, to uh, adulthood. And so, so you know, that's kind of how that process works. So it was her time to, to kidnap me, 
And so she texted me. She said, hey, just be ready. I think it was like six. She told me what to wear. I had to dress up, all right? I, I'm not a big dresser-upper. I'll do it when you have to if I'm doing a wedding or whatever, but uh, I, I get real hot. And you think, well, you got to, yeah, I understand. And so, you know, I, I, she said, put the suit coat on, do the whole deal. And I said, all right, I got you. So she picks me up in the car, and we start to drive. And I said, where are we going? Do you know what her answer was? It's a surprise. It's a miracle we're still married at this point right now. Another thing you need to learn about me, I could not stand downtown Memphis. Couldn't stand it. Uh, Number one, I don't think you should pay for parking, ever. If I pay for parking, I'm not paying for your merchandise. You know what I mean? I've already paid. I paid to get here. Your stuff should be free. And so I didn't really understand the whole downtown thing. And then, you know, it's crowded and people. And I just, uh, I just, uh, I didn't like it. And so we're in the car and we're driving. And I said, hey, where are we going? She said, it's a surprise. Well, I'm the guy that then becomes the investigator, right? So I'm looking at every red light, every street sign. I know we're not going this way because we would have went that way if we were going this way. And so I start putting two together, and we're headed to downtown Memphis. I said, Darla, you're not taking me to downtown, are you? She said, Troy, stop it. I said, listen, you know I hate downtown Memphis. Don't take me to downtown Memphis. She said, listen, Troy, just be quiet. Just Just let me do this. And I said, look, you're messing up. You're messing up. So we get to downtown Memphis. And she pulls into this parking garage, and I get out of my car in a suit jacket and some nice pants and some nice shoes in this stinky, nasty parking garage. And I'm already upset, y'all, right? I'm just like, I'm just done. So she says, come here, babe. So I come around the car, and she hands me a crock pot of potato soup. You got me dressed up in a parking garage in downtown Memphis holding a crock pot of potato soup. So then she grabs some other stuff and we start walking. I'm like, where are we going? She's like, it's a surprise. I'm like, oh my, I'm about to throw all this soup on you. You know what I mean? So we come out of the parking garage. We're walking downtown Memphis. People walking by looking at us like, what is this guy doing? Why is he carrying a crock? Don't he know this ain't his house? We, we passed by a few, a few in, in downtown Memphis, homeless people are everywhere. And so pe- they were kind of coming up to me. They were like, you know, you got, you got any money? I said, no, but I got some potato soup. You are more than welcome to get a bowl. You know what I mean? Like, matter of fact, just follow us and we'll eat together. And, and so we're walking and we get up to the front door of this hotel, this super nice hotel downtown Memphis. And I'm like, I'm not going in there with no crock pot of potato soup. What do I look like? She said, come on. So we, go, we get into the elevator. Y'all, I'm on an elevator in a suit coat holding a crock pot. And we get to the top to the roof of the hotel, and the elevator doors open, and there's a beeline to the roof of the hotel. Now, here's the catch. This hotel has, like, rooftop parties, okay? So, you know, individuals in downtown Memphis, after they get done working, they come to the hotel and get some drinks, and they have a party up on the rooftop. So there's people there drinking, dancing, having a good old time, and here I come with a crock pot of potato soup. And I walk in and there's this little table set up and two of our friends at the time that lived in Memphis are sitting there with little glasses and a little bowl of salad and we sit down on this table in our little chairs and she plugs the, pot- the, the crock pot up into this wall thing and we're just sitting on this rooftop with all these people dancing with a crock pot of potato soup. And the night ended up going okay, and, you know, you know I was kind of a, a jerk for, like, the first half of it. But then I finally kind of cut loose, and, and, and we ate together, and then we get, got up and did some dancing, and we did some pictures, and, and we laughed. But I was frustrated, and, and I realized, I said, babe, look, I know you were trying to be romantic, 
and I know you're trying to be sweet, and it's my birthday, but I totally missed your message, right? I, I was frustrated. I had taken in all these experiences and let my emotions get a part of me, and, and I was just done. I didn't get romance. I didn't get love. I just got embarrassment, and I wanted off the roof. You know what I mean? I had totally missed her message. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, you've allowed your emotions and you've allowed what you expected to, to kind of uh, begin to affect you, and you have missed my message all along. You've missed it. Hear me. The only reason while an individual, the only reason why an individual could be in access of Jesus Christ and not commit their life to him would be because his message has been miscommunicated. Let me say it again because you need to catch this because this is going to literally be the foundation from where we, the only reason why your coworker, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your auntie, your uncle, the only reason why anybody would ever have access to Jesus and not immediately commit their life to him is because his message has been miscommunicated to them, okay? Some people communicate that the message of Jesus is behavior control. Jesus wants you to act better. Jesus wants you to be better. Jesus wants you to change everything about you. And so we start to communicate that as the message of Jesus. And people go, ah, yeah, yeah, ah. So, some people will say the message of Jesus was to build a holier-than-thou country club. Well, if I don't dress with a suit and a tie, and if I don't pronounce my these and thys, then I don't belong in this country club, and Jesus came for them. Some people communicate that his is his teaching, that he was just a great prophet and an, and an educated leader. Some people communicate that his message was his death. Some people don't know what his message was. They just know everybody else following Jesus, let me follow Jesus. I don't know what his message is. It's interesting because there's a moment in Scripture where the religious leaders give Jesus a nickname. They try to insult him, or in my term, they try to check him. Anybody here remember checking? Anybody check in high school? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I understand now it's, it, you know, bullying and all that is a whole other level and, and stuff. But when I was in high school, I graduated in 02, so let's just say in 98, maybe 99, checking was way less about hurting somebody's feelings and way more about creativity. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you could get checked and you would laugh. Like, it, it didn't make it didn't hurt your feelings. It was just checking. It was like a sport. And, man, I was good at it. You know, we'd sit down, and they'd be like, hey, we're going to start checking. And I'd be like, oh, Troy, check him. I'm like, oh, man, your mom's so dumb. They said it was chilly outside. She ran and got a bowl. You know what I'm saying? Get it? No? All right. I'm like, come on. Like, Ooh, come on, Troy, get him. No, I said, man, you're so poor. I walked in your house. There were 15 cockroaches on the couch saying, we are family. You know what I'm saying, man? Right? Obviously, our day has passed. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. Mom's so old, Moses signed her yearbook. You know what I'm saying? Just, just, you're just checking. You're just checking. Then it moved into another area where you can just be big head, little body. Y'all ever say that? I, I, I check my daughters right now that way. She's like, big head, little body. And it's bad. It's don't do it. So these guys get ready. Watch this. They are fixing to check Jesus. They're fixing to check him. They're in a the hallway, right? All the Pharisees, they're over there kicking it like West Side Story. And then comes Jesus with his backpack. He's walking on air. You know what I mean? And they're like, hey, hey, here he come, here he come, here he come. Get him. Yo, yo, get him. He's like, yo, Jesus. 
You a drunkard? Oh, <laughs> boom, roasted. You know what I mean? Got him. You know what I'm saying? Like, awkward. Like, you know what I mean? Just, oh, Jesus, check him again, man. Check him again. Like, oh, you, you, you know what you is, Jesus? You, you're a glutton. Oh, no, he didn't. Talking about your mama food. You know, they just, just roasting him. And then here came the moment. Here was that. I got it. God shushed his team. Said, stop laughing. Stop laughing. I'm about to burn him. That, you went from checking to burn. Now it's burn, right? He got burned. I said, watch this. Jesus, Jesus, you are a friend of sinners. Oh, snap, dog. Oh, my goodness. Boom. Roasted. You think I'm lying? Look at Matthew 11:19. 19. Dead serious. I don't make this stuff up. I just bring it into our generation. You know what I'm saying? The son of man came eating and drinking. Here's what Jesus said. They are saying this about me. Here's a glutton, here and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Y'all got to hear this. They thought they were insulting Jesus. They thought they were checking him up and down. They thought they were delivering a boom roasted. They, they thought they got him. Jesus, you a friend of sinners. Ah, sucker. You following a friend of sinners. You know what I mean? They, they were trying to insult him, church. But Jesus, because of his message, he did not see it as an insult. It wasn't a sign of shame. To Jesus, watch this, it was a sign of success. When it came to his message, being called a friend of sinners was a sign that he was achieving his purpose and his goal. Jesus' message right here, I'm going to give you the answer mid-message. And the reason why I'm going to give you the answer now is because I think we all don't fully know what it means. Jesus' message was amazing grace. That was his message. Amazing. Band, come back up. Let's get, I'm just kidding. Always looking for an opportunity to sing. You know what I mean, little brother? Amazing. Oh, yeah. I get it, Troy. Let's go ahead and wrap this thing up. I know what you mean. Jesus was amazing grace. Let's go be amazing great. No. We sing it so much and we say it so much. In our mind, grace has more to do with our food than it does the message of Jesus. Listen, the word amazing means two things. You ready? One, shocking. Shocking is what it means. Shocking. Grace that is shocking. Jesus' grace was scandalous. It was shocking. I heard one pastor say, he was trying to define grace, and this is going to show you how wrong we are sometimes about grace. He was trying to talk about it, define it. He said, Put it this way, imagine that you're in a boat, and the boat has a current that's pulling you towards hell, okay? Y'all there with me? You're in a boat, current pulling you towards hell, and God hands you oars, and those oars are grace, and you get to just row and avoid hell. Woo! I said, that sounds horrible, because that means grace means I got to do this all the time. Right? Grace, 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 
Chris, and guess what? If I make it to the end and I don't get sucked into the current, whew, and I got to the finish line and it's done, everybody gets to say, great job, who? You. And that's not grace. Grace, if you were going to use that illustration, here's what I would think. Hell, current, our desire to be better, our desire to do good, and grace is like a flood that comes in and forces us out of the current that's pulling us to hell. Y'all ever seen Evan Almighty? Should have won an uh, Oscar or Grammy or whatever awards people get for movies. Um, I was watching it the other day on Netflix, and if you remember the scene towards the end, the, the flood happens. If you haven't seen the movie, about to totally kill it for you, okay? Uh, it does happen, all right? And so the flood comes in, and he's in the boat, and it's going, and they're about to hit a bridge. Y'all remember this? Anybody remember this? All right, if you don't, come to my house after service, we'll watch it, okay? So, so they're about to hit this bridge, and in come, he's, he literally, he says, need a little help here! Yeah, it sounded like it, right? I do impressions. And so um, all of a sudden this wave comes up out of nowhere. A big wave comes up. <sighs> Shadows cast on his face and boom, and it hits the boat. And the boat goes from this direction to all and over here. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, Lord, that's grace. Grace is, shh, what, what? And now I'm not in that current anymore. That's the understanding of grace. Most of our problems is we think grace is controlled by performance. That depending on how we do, it depends on how much grace is dispensed. As if there's a dispenser of grace. And if you got enough change, you can get some more grace. But it's not. And listen, this story in Matthew 9 proves that the religious leaders of that day also thought that grace was performance-based. And Jesus ruins it all. And let me show you what I mean. To fully understand it, you have to understand who Matthew was. Because if you're not careful, you'll read this, and when you read Matthew, you'll think of the first Matthew you know. And they may not be a bad person. And so you just move on. And the fact that Jesus called him to follow him isn't really a big deal. It'd be as if Jesus called your next-door neighbor to follow him. It wouldn't really matter to you. But if you understand that Matthew is a tax collector. He works for the IRS. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. Okay. But let me explain to you why he was so hated. In that time, the Roman Empire came in and took over, took charge. Y'all ever seen mafia movies where they show up to restaurants and they're like, you have to pay us a certain amount of money uh, of your profit for us to kind of not destroy and burn down your shop. You know what I mean? Maybe I watch too many gangster movies. Y'all need to step your game up. And so so Roman Empire came in, they, they took over. They said, look, we're going to put in place a tax. And if you don't pay us the tax we put in place... We're going to destroy everything you got. So out of fear, the Jewish people started paying taxes, right? But Roman Empire is smart. They're not going to stay in this area the whole time because they got to go get money from them and from them and from them. So here's what they would do. They would raise up a Jewish person from that community and say, listen, you are going to collect our taxes from your neighbors, Imagine if somebody came in and all of a sudden they said, you know what, Blake, here's the deal. I'm going to charge Victory Church money for just existing because they're amazing. And I'm going to put you responsible for standing at the door. And every time people walk in, you collect taxes. You collect taxes. You collect from your people. 
the people you ate with, the people who came to your birthday party, your people. Imagine the person you love the most stealing from you. And then to make it worse, here's what the Roman Empire told Matthew. Here's what they told every tax collector. Let's just say we're going to collect $20. Any money you take above the 20, you get to keep. Ooh. So you mean I have the fear of the Roman Empire in my hands, and I can go to my neighbor and say, you owe them $40, or they'll burn this place down. And when they hand me 40, I can pocket 20? Shoo, this is working out pretty good. And that became so commonly known that tax collectors became the most hated people around. Hated by everybody because people knew, you used to be my boy. We used to cook out together. Remember, you made the sausages and I made the burgers. Remember that? We'd both cheer on the Falcons and then we moved because they're horrible. You know, and we just, we, 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 were, we were boys. We were boys. And now you're taking, you're taking food out of my kid's mouth. Man, I hate you. You're disgusting. So here he sits at the tax collector's booth. And theologians say it would have been in a public place. It would have either been in a market or it would have been by water because people are coming by water. Remember, they didn't have vehicles then, okay? So they're traveling by water on boats, getting off, and they would sit right in the middle. Everybody would see them. And I'm imagining them walking by and just giving them, the, you know, that high school look, like that mean girls look, how the cheerleaders look at you when you're in the hallway and they're just like, you know, that whole kind of deal. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like people were probably spitting towards his little booth. Like, man, I hate you, man. Just, just complete hatred. And here's what's crazy. Listen, you can guarantee he had heard about Jesus. Jesus had been performing miracles like crazy. Right before this, he just healed a man whose friends lowered him down through the roof. Y'all probably heard that story. That, whole, that was all around. Everybody was talking about that. Did you hear what happened? That dude came to the roof. Oh, my goodness, he raised the roof. You know what I mean? People were talking about it. So he knew about it. He knew about Jesus, but the fact that he stayed at that booth meant his heart was hardened towards Jesus. So watch this, y'all. I got to catch this. I don't know if I can illustrate it good enough, but just roll with me for a second. He's sitting at the booth, and everybody around him hates him. He is the most disgusted individual in the area. And then he starts to hear, hey, Jesus, come, Jesus, come. Jesus is coming. Hey, man, Jesus is coming. Is that him? Oh, that's him. That's the boy. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And he's sitting in his booth crossing his arms. I don't want to hear nothing he has to say. He's going to come over here and judge me and hate me just like everybody else. My mama hates me. My daddy hates me. Everybody hates me. Jesus is going to hate me. And here comes Jesus, right? He's blessing folks, kissing babies, touching folks, you know. He's just like, you, got, you, you need water? Boom, wine. You know what I mean? He's just, just blessing folks. And he gets to the booth, and I just believe, doesn't say these things in Scripture, but I just believe that he caught eye contact with Matthew. And for a second, Matthew was ready for that disgusted look. Go on, Jesus, give it to me. I'm a bad person, I know. Everybody tells me. I'm the worst. Come on. You're holier than thou. You are all about behavior change. You know, you're this great prophet. Go ahead and tell me how horrible I am. I'm ready. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, follow me. What'd you say? I did, I did, I did, I did. Follow you? B 
Because back then, you understand what that meant. If you were going to follow a prophet, it would, be, it would be close. They say that you would be followed so close that the dust from my heels would get on you. So what it meant was intimacy and friendship. But I'm, I'm Matthew. I, I'm the disgusted one. Not in my eyes. You're the called one. Because I came with a message of amazing grace. Shocking, scandalous grace. And when I say to you, follow me, the reverberations of scandal and shock go to everybody who says, he called Matthew? I don't get Jesus' message. What are you doing, Jesus? I'm here for the sick, not the healthy. I'm here for the sinner, not the righteous. And here's what I love. Jesus was so irresistible, watch this, that after it happened, you know what Matthew did? Matthew called all of his sinning friends. I'm talking about, all, I'm talking about the kind of kids you don't let your kids hang out with. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like your kids are bad. Don't get me wrong. My kids, are, we're all bad. But there's always like that kid where you're like, look, honey, <laughs> you can hang out with little Ricky and little Bobby, but don't hang out with him. Like, don't hang out with him. Those were those kinds of kids. And Jesus got them all. Matthew said, hey, come on. Y'all remember that commercial back in the day where they come like, what's up? Y'all remember that? Matthew got on the phone. He was like, what's up? And they were like, what's up? And he was like, Yo, come over, come over, come over. You got to see this guy. And they come and have dinner with Jesus. Look at it. Clear as day. Verses 9 through 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Jesus is eating Matthew's potato salad. This is intimacy. And all of the tax collectors, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. You said, Troy, well, who cares? They had dinner together. They ate a Bojangles chicken biscuit, had a Chipotle you know, bowl, had some kale or whatever keto diet you people eat these days. All right, what does it matter? What's the big deal? Listen, dinner wasn't then what it is now. Most of us eat dinner real quick in front of the TV with a TV tray. There were two meals a day in Jesus' day. If you ate lunch, you ate lunch on the run. Breakfast was a quick meal at home. Normally, they didn't cook. Because breakfast was light and lunch was on the run, dinner was a party. How many of you, uh, maybe you don't do it now, how many of you used to, or maybe you still do, you have a Sunday, like you go over to a family member's house on Sunday after church and pick out? Anybody, you do that? Or Okay, all right, there we go. Nobody has family. Okay, and so... Um, Let's do this. How many of you, when, when Thanksgiving comes around, you have a really big group of people with Thanksgiving, right? Uh, I was going to say, if you don't raise your hand, everybody's coming to my house this Thanksgiving. And, and so, so y'all know what that's like to come in. I was talking to somebody today, and they were talking, oh, it was Dallas. And he was somebody, he walks in and like, these people over here playing dominoes, and these people over here play, putting a puzzle together, and these people are outside, and everybody's just family everywhere. All this fun. And when the Bible talked about Jesus eating dinner, it would say he was reclining, okay? Jesus was hanging with them. It wasn't a quick meal. It was hours upon hours of intimate fellowship with sinners and tax collectors. With the most disgusted people in their community, Jesus said, let's go hang out. Listen, I said this a couple weeks ago, but the Lord gave me a new purpose for this. In these houses, they would have windows that were cut out. Not glass or anything, it was just cut out. You know, they didn't have air conditioner back then. I'm so glad I didn't live back then. And so they had just cut out, and you could walk by and see in the house. 
So when the Pharisees walked by Matthew's house and they looked in the window, guess what they saw? Jesus with the tax collectors and the sinners. Because Jesus was doing this. Hey guys, please get my message. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I came with grace that's scandalous and shocking and amazing. And I wonder, just wonder, if the reason why Jesus was so irresistible is because of that grace and the reason why the church has become so resistible is because we've missed the message of grace. I remember saying this a few, probably about a couple months ago about the Holy Spirit. It's never been our job to convict. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. Jesus said one thing. He said, you'll know, people will know you are my disciples by the way what? Anybody? By the way you love one another. And so I was thinking this through. I'm like, all right, God, we're about to do a series for six weeks where we're going to break open Jesus and what he was about and why he did what he did and what his message really was so that we as Christians can go and be more like Christ. You know, that's what a Christian means to be like Christ. So many of us are not like Christ. And it's not because we're bad people. It's because we're not really sure what Christ was like. And so to fully understand the message, we got to fully understand Jesus, right? And so I'm studying this and I'm like, God, help us. Help us to understand grace. Give us, because I can say grace all day, but to you it's a biblical term. It's the same thing as sacrifice. Or, or Brian was saying all kinds of different terms. And when he was talking about it, he said, the elements. I'm like, the elements? Sound like a fifth element movie. Like, what's happening? The elements. You know what I mean? These words can just become words to us. And I was like, Lord, I want, here's what I want to do. Listen to me. Every week, and this is a, I'm putting this on me as a challenge that God's going to help me with. Every week, I want to give you a tangible example that you can go into your workplace, your home, and you can describe Jesus with, okay? Whether it's an illustration or it's a story, but you can take it and you can describe the irresistible message of Jesus this week and be able to have the opportunity to help somebody find him. So I'm praying, right? I'm at the gym, I'm praying. I'm like, God, give me, give me something that just clearly shows it. I, I can say the word grace all day and you're not gonna fully get it. I can describe to you, Matthew, as a tax collector, you're not going to fully get it, okay, because we don't have tax collectors. I can't say so-and-so is like Matthew because that's really mean, right? And, and so it's kind of hard for us to get it. And the Lord led me to this story, and I'm going to share this story with you, and then we'll get ready to close. But listen to this story, okay? <laughs> there was this couple, Tim and Rebecca Jones. Tim and Rebecca Jones. We'll only talk about Tim. They decided to adopt a little girl named Amy, okay? Tim and Rebecca Jones, they adopt Amy. It's a true story, true story. So they go through this process and they adopt Amy. And after they adopt Amy, they find out that Amy had already been adopted before. And that she was adopted by another family. And this family decided that for whatever reason, they just couldn't quite deal with her. And so they gave her back to foster care and that kind of process. And she went back into the system and now however many years later, whatever it was, months later, now Tim and his wife are going back through the system and they want to adopt and they get Amy, okay? So in a conversation with Tim and Amy, Tim finds out that his new daughter, Amy, loves Disney World, loves it. She just is obsessed with it. It's all she ever talks about. 
And so she keeps telling him about stories of Disney World. This is what it looks like, and that's what, and this happens, and this happens. He goes, how do you know so much about Disney if you've never been? And she goes, well, my, my old family, the, the, my old brothers and sisters, they, they would tell me stories about it. He said, I'm confused. You, you, were with, you didn't go with them? And she said, no, my, my adopted mom and dad wouldn't let me go when they took my, my adopted brothers and they took their biological kids that they wouldn't let me go with them. They made me stay home with somebody else. And that just broke Tim's heart. So Tim goes to his wife, he says, babe, listen, this year, before the year's over, we're taking Amy to Disney World. We're doing it, we're doing it. And so they start planning and saving money and he ends up having a, I just think this is God. He ends up having a job situation that sends him out towards where Disney World is. So he tells his wife, he says, we're going. Tell Amy, tell Amy, we're going. So they tell Amy a couple months before, and Amy's just, she's super excited, right? She cannot wait. We're going to Disney World. They leave on a Friday. They're going to leave on a Friday, okay? Literally a week before, this is a true story, a week before she starts acting horrible. If you have kids, you've been there before, planning this big, you know, vacation, and now all of a sudden they want to act up. And I don't know about you, but here's what I'm tempted to do. If you don't act right, you're not going to go to Disney, right? So she's horrible the whole week. According to him, she was lying. She was getting in trouble in school. She was trying to steal from them. She was just crazy how bad she was. And so it ends up being Thursday night. They're leaving Friday for Disney. And he's putting Amy to bed. And Amy gets up out of the bed. She looks at him. She says, Dad, I guess I'm not going to get to go to Disney, huh? Kind of caught him off guard for a second. He said, why? What, what do you mean? She goes, well, I've, I've been bad all week. So I guess I don't get to go to Disney. And he said, for a second, I thought, you know what? That's, he said, I didn't think about it. But when she said it, I thought, you probably shouldn't. <laughs> but instead, he said to her, is the Disney trip a family trip? She said, yeah, Dad. Are you family? She said, yeah. You're going to Disney. So Friday, they wake up, they fly out. They get there, they settle down. She's a perfect angel. Go to bed, wake up Saturday. They go to Disney all day. She enjoys the princesses, all the rides, all the food. They come back home, it's late. She's exhausted. He's putting her to bed. He says, baby, how'd you enjoy Disney? She said, oh, dad, it's everything I thought it would be. The princesses, they're real, dad, they're real. He goes, yeah, they're real. She said, and the food, oh, that food. And he says, yeah, I'm feeling the food too. And she said, those rides, it was so much fun. He said, baby, we get to go back tomorrow. So she gave him a really big hug. She let him go and she climbed in her bed. I was imagining, I was seeing this with my little girl last night. So he climbs in the bed and he goes to leave the room. She goes, Dad? Yeah, babe. I learned something today. He said, what did you learn? Came back in the room. She said, I learned that I didn't get to go to Disney because I'm good. 
I got to go because I'm yours. And when I read that, I felt the Holy Spirit tell me so clearly, here's the definition of grace. You get the kingdom, not because you're good, but because you're his. It's not because you're good. It's not about performance and it's not about behavior. You get it because you're his. The Bible says you're an heir to the throne because of who your daddy is. Because you are his. And Jesus came with one message and it was the main point. And every teaching he ever did and every relationship he ever formed and every miracle he ever acted out was to tell you one thing and it was Matthew! You get the kingdom. And it's not because of who you are or what you've done or how bad you are or how good you are or how many verses you can memorize or how many times you've been in church. It has nothing to do with who you are. It has everything to do with whose you are. So that's the message of the Jesus I live for. That's why he's so irresistible. Because in a world where we're constantly trying to perform to be something, Jesus says, I made you the way I made you. Quit rowing. Let him go and let me come in like a flood. And as you walk with me, you go from tax collector to disciple. And when it's said and done, people will be telling stories about your life so that people can understand the message of Jesus. Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. Oh, your faithfulness. I'm so excited to just learn more about you and to walk away with a clear idea of who you are. Because if I know who you are, I can't miscommunicate you. And Lord, you were irresistible. Matthew dropped everything to follow you. And you were so irresistible that he invited his sinning friends over to be in your presence. That's the Jesus I serve. I'm so tired of trying to be something that I'm not able to be. And help me to communicate who you are. I want to pray over some of you this morning from whatever reason, whether it's been the, theolo the, the theology that you were raised up in, maybe it's the household you were raised up in, maybe you've just never quite been told correctly that Jesus Christ's message, his sacrifice on the cross, and ultimately his resurrection, the blood in which and the body in which you just uh, worshiped or brought attention to through communion was all so that you could quit trying to be good and just let him love you and lead you to where he wants you to be. And so I say that to say this morning, if you have been A, following the wrong Jesus, I wanna give you an opportunity this morning to just say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Your message was miscommunicated to me and I'm starting to hear it today for the first time in the real way. And I'm so excited over the next five weeks to learn more about you. And I wanna recommit my life to you. 
If you're in here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never committed your life to Jesus. And I said at the beginning, there's no way you could be in, in, in the, you can, no way you could have access to him and not want to commit your life to him. So I believe that. So I believe now that you know who Jesus is, you have a desire to give your heart to him. And so here's what I'm gonna ask. All eyes closed. You don't have to bow your heads or anything. Just keep your eyes closed. If you wanna either recommit or for the very first time you want to commit your life to Jesus, do me a favor, just raise your hand. I just need to see it for a second. Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Put it in here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just put it in here. Praise God. Jesus, I'm so humble before you right now. Because just like everybody else in this room, Lord, you preached these sermons to me before I ever preached them. And I remember I told my friend in the gym that I was walking the track crying because I finally got a picture of your grace. And so, Lord, I pray right now for every hand that's raised. I pray for my hand. That, God, as we move forward, we would commit our lives to the Jesus that you are, not the Jesus we've been told that you are. we'd be excited to operate in the grace, the shocking, scandalous, amazing grace that you've given us. The Bible says if you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. So if you never committed your life to Jesus and you believe in your heart right now, I've shown you in scripture. Feel free to go home and study it yourself. Listen to me right now. If you go home and study Jesus, you will not be able to prove what I say wrong. And I'll show you over the next five weeks. All you have to do is believe in your heart and say, Jesus, would you come and be my savior? Would you come and lead me, direct me, help me? I commit my life to you. All you have to do is do what Matthew said, or I'm sorry, do what Matthew did and follow him. That's what Jesus is saying this morning. Follow me. Follow me. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you that you came for the healthy. I'm sorry, for the sick, not the healthy. Thank you that you came for sinners and not the righteous. All right, do me a favor. Look up at me. Um... I believe with all of my heart that God has put this series on our church for a purpose. And in a generation and in a culture where Jesus is so miscommunicated, it's our responsibility to correctly communicate him. And so I, I wanna do a little challenge for you. When you came in, you probably got something that looks like this. If you didn't, raise your hand, we'll grab it for you. It's gonna be really, really important. Some of you, some of you will understand this. Some of you, you'll need a little bit of persuasion, so I'm about to persuade you. I've told you before, me, numbers have meanings. The number five means grace. Number five means grace. And Malcolm reminded me the other night, and just profound, that after today, there are five weeks left in this series. God must know what he's doing. These are just invitations to our church, and we've, Erica has edited them. As you see at the top, there's a little blank white space. Here's what I'm challenging you to do. I told you I'm going to tell you about an irresistible Jesus. For the next five weeks, I guarantee you your mind's going to be messed up. I got an illustration for you next week that you'll be slapping your mom in the face about. I'm going to communicate Jesus. 
I need you to communicate an irresistible message out there so that they'll want to know more about irresistible Jesus. I just gave you the most simple illustration you can use, Amy and Tim. Change the names, Tim won't care. But tell the story. What we're asking you to do with this is on the top of every one of these cards, pray about and write a name. Coworker, mom, dad, sister, friend, waitress at the Mexican restaurant, wherever it is. Write their name. Then listen, you're gonna pray over these. Don't do this in your power, do this in his. Well, I don't know how to invite people. What if they tell me no? What if they do? But if you'll pray about it, God will go with you. And then you're gonna invite them. You got five weeks. Invite them all one week, invite one per week. However, the Holy Spirit lays it on your heart. But hear me, don't you hear about this message? Don't you get to hear about grace? Don't you get to learn about irresistible Jesus and then walk out of here and not tell anybody? Matthew, the most disgusting, are you disgusting? I mean, technically, biblically, yes. We'll talk about that too in a couple weeks. But for the sake of this conversation, you've showered, so let's say no. And yet he, after meeting Jesus, thought, I got to tell my friends. That should just be natural with us. I got to go tell people about this Jesus. And so we want to challenge you. And listen, Darla and I, I've told you before, I'll, I'll tell you this to the day I die. We will never ask you to do something that we won't do. So these are my five, and I'll make sure she gets her five when she gets out of the nursery. And there will be people in this place hearing about Jesus. And I believe it, church. Are you with me? So I'm going to pray. And then the worship band's going to play just for a moment. And here's what this is for. It's just an opportunity for you to reflect, A, on what we've talked about, B, on who God would have you pray for. You can write it now if you have a pen or marker, but you can take it home and talk about it with your spouse or whatever. But I just want to give you a moment, if nothing else, to pray. God, lay on my heart those who need to hear about the irresistible message of grace. Okay? Lord, we thank you right now for your faithfulness. But God, we thank you for your charge. You told us to go and tell the gospel. And the gospel is good news. And so much we treat it as if it's bad news or reluctant news. And God, I pray right now for every one of us, supernatural, that you would lay people on our mind. God, I believe you sought after Matthew with the other tax collectors in mind. Oh, God, I just believe it. You had those people on your mind, so you sought Matthew because you knew you could go through Matthew to them. And God, there are people in this room that you want to be able to experience a relationship with you, and you're going to get to them through us in this room. So I pray for anointing. I pray for favor. I pray for your Holy Spirit and your hand. And I pray right now that you'd begin to bring names to people's minds. And God, as they're eating lunch, you'd bring a name. And as they're watching football, you'd bring a name. And as they're at work on Monday, you'd bring a name. And God, over the next five weeks, we're going to celebrate the people who give their life to you. Because no one can have access to you and hear your message and not commit their life. So God, we give you praise right now. We thank you so much.
give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said?